If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you should just look around. There's probably one somewhere close to you in the seating area. They're scattered throughout that area, and we'd love for you to just take one of those with you. That would be our gift to you. Hebrews chapter 5 That's where we're going to be this morning. Those of you who are visiting with us, we are in the middle, or not quite the middle. We're a couple of three months into uh, uh, what's going to be a year-long study for us in the book of Hebrews. It's a letter that's ancient. It's been, it's been around since just after Jesus walked the earth. And ever since that time has been a testimony to the church about why Jesus matters so much. In particular, about why we can't trade Jesus for anything else that offers us hope in this world. One of the things that we've seen this author of this letter do over and over again is compare Jesus to things. He's constantly saying, Jesus is better than that. You might be tempted to to trust in that. Well, here's why Jesus does something that 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 thing, whatever it might be, can't do, or maybe was never even meant to do. A lot of times those comparisons have to do with the Old Testament, with looking back at the Old Testament and saying, okay, so, so they had the law, they had their covenants, they had their prophets. Jesus is what all those things were meant to be, only more clearly and more fully. Jesus isn't just an example of faithfulness, for example. He is faithful for us. Today we come to another one of these comparisons, and this is one that's going to carry us through the next big chunk of this book. In this passage, chapter 5, Jesus is compared to the Old Testament priesthood. The point is that Jesus, as a priest, is everything that that whole system was set up to be and to, to, to really foreshadow. Now, now th- this is going to present a particular challenge to us, I think. I'm guessing I'm not the only one who doesn't connect immediately with the importance of a priesthood. This is one of those messages where the, the form of it and the, the language of it is so foreign to our everyday lives that, that sometimes the message can just roll off like water off of a duck's back. I think that's going to be a particular challenge for us in the next couple of weeks, or a few weeks, really. Because we're going to be talking a lot about the priesthood, and it's going to require us to think really hard about bridging this gap between the world of this letter and when it was written and the world that we actually live in. Connecting with this concept of the priesthood is going to be one of the most important challenges we face in this study, because it's all through this letter. And the way that this passage, chapter 5, functions for us is it's kind of like an introduction or an overview of the whole discussion that's coming about the priesthood. It's almost like really a table of contents because we get these, what you're going to see is you get these ideas mentioned, just sort of thrown out and not explained in detail. But then he comes back to it over and over again in some of the chapters that we're going to. It lays down some of the important concepts for us. So what we're going to do this morning is take a pass at this whole thing. We're going to take a pass at the first 10 verses of chapter 5 as a way of taking a pass at the priesthood and how Jesus relates to it. I want to come at it through asking three questions. I want you to think about these questions when we read the passage together here in a minute. Think about these three questions. We need to answer, why do we need a priest? Right? It's not immediately obvious to us, I think. We need to answer, what were priests meant to do? In the system that that was set up in the Old Testament, the system that this author is drawing from, what were they doing? What was the point of the priesthood? And then we got to answer, this is most important, how is it that Jesus provides us with a perfect priest? If the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is the last one we're ever going to need, how is that? What is it about what Jesus does 
that gives us a perfect priesthood? Those are the three questions we're going to try to address this morning. So I want you to think about those now as we stand together and read through this passage. This is God's word from Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication, with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think before this passage, for, really before any of it, and before any of the chapters that are coming next are going to make sense to us, we have to work hard to connect with why we need a priest. I want us to start there. I'm guessing you're like me and that you don't think about that very often, right? Now, on one hand, we're constantly thinking about things we need, right? I need to finish that paper. I need a job, I need my kids to stop acting crazy. I need something to eat. I need a new car. We think about our needs all the time. But I'm guessing you've never been laying in your bed at night trying to go to sleep, thinking to yourself, what I really need is a priest, preferably one from the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) This priest talks max of religious jargon. It smacks of ideas that are abstract to us and we struggle to bring down to earth, you know, to where we actually live. But when the Bible comes at us with these categories, these categories that just aren't immediately relevant to us in our experience, these categories we're not naturally drawn to, it's because there's something timeless there that we need to see that we're not prone to see. I recently heard Steve Jobs quoted, on his marketing strategy and why he hated marketing research, right? Marketing research being that field of trying to understand what people want so you can give it to them, right? Find a market niche for yourself that you can fill. Jobs didn't like that because he was a visionary. What he wanted was to come up with a product no one had ever even really considered before that maybe they didn't even know they wanted and then give it to them. This is what Jobs said. Some people say, give the customers what they want, but that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, if I'd asked customers what they want and what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. 
People don't know what they want until you show it to them. That's why I never rely on market research. Our tasks, jobs concluded, is to read things that are not yet on the page. You get the, the, the point here, the importance? He's trying to stay ahead of where people recognize themselves to be, to find out what they really do need and what, honestly, if they, if they recognize it, they would see that they really do want but to, to do that in categories that they haven't even considered yet, like Henry Ford swapping buggies drawn by horses for cars. If he'd only listened to what people wanted on the surface, then he would have just given them a better buggy. He wanted to change the game. Similarly, the Bible is all about exposing things that deep down we do want, but that we don't know that we want because our minds are blinded by sin. Because our, our, our frame of reference is, is too narrow. We're like horses with blinders that only see the things that are immediate and obvious in front of us and, and can't see the bigger picture. The Bible tells us, in things like its discussion of the priesthood, that there's something we really want, as much as we want iPads now that we know what they are, that, that we just don't have the right terms for. So before you check out, if the priesthood is not something that's naturally interesting to you, I really think you're going to see, as we get deeper into it, that it offers something you want, even if you don't realize that you want it. Let me give you a couple of examples. I want to come at this from a couple of different places. Why do we need a priest? The core answer that I want to come at in a couple of ways is this. We need a priest because there's a relationship at the core of our lives, a relationship that gets at the reason we were made, And that touches everything else about us. And it's a broken relationship. The reason we need a priest is that there is a relationship at the core of our lives. One that gets at why we were made. And that touches everything else about us. And that relationship is broken. The first verse in chapter 5 implies this. It introduces the, a typical priest. It says every, every high priest is chosen and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, offering sacrifices. Now, what, what you have to get from that, I think, it doesn't say it in so many words, but the, the point is that there's something that needs to be bridged. Right? If this person is appointed to act as sort of a go-between, there, the implication is that there's, there's something that's not right, that this, this relationship can't just happen face-to-face. There's a, there's a gap. Something about it is broken and defective. This breach is at the heart of the Bible's story, and understanding it is the key to connecting with the idea of the priesthood and why it matters. Let me me come at this from a couple of angles. First, I'm guessing you have noticed your need for a priest, even if you haven't thought about it in those terms. I'm guessing you've all known what it's like to have a relationship at the heart of your life that anytime there's a rupture, you, you know what that feels like. There's almost a feeling to it in the pit of your stomach, right? it sort of throws your life off kilter for a time. So, for example, when Lindsay and I have, say, heated, friendly discussions, when, when, there's, any, when there's any time that, that I feel like we're not on the same page, that I'm not happy with the way I've just interacted with her, if I've, if I've offended her or, or not, been, not been loving in the way that we've, that we've connected, if there's any difference between us on, on any given issue, there's a feeling to that. I mean, everything just feels off. It makes it harder to do any of the things that you normally would enjoy, like just read or watch TV or even sleep. 
it throws off what's normal for my life. Some of you probably experience this with close friends, maybe with someone you're dating, maybe someone you're married to, maybe it's your parents. I'm certain there, there are folks in here today who, who as children experienced ruptured, deep rupture in the relationship with their parents, this relationship that they depended on for stability and security and for provision and peace, a relationship that gets at who you are. When that gets ruptured, it throws everything off. The Bible claims that there is a relationship at the heart of our lives, one that we were made for, that's broken, and that that is at the heart of all kinds of sorrow, of restlessness in general, of fear, of depression. That ruptured relationship is the reason behind us lashing out in anger at anyone or anything. It's the reason we're unsatisfied. It's the reason we feel shame. That All of these common human experiences trace back to one source, and that is a broken relationship that has thrown everything off kilter. I'm guessing you've experienced it. The Bible puts terms to it and, and gives us a reason. Here's another angle. So the Bible teaches that God made us for himself, right? That he made us in his image to have fellowship with him, to enjoy him, so that he could prove his glory, how wonderful he is, his, his might and power and beauty and creativity in the fact that we, he is enough for us. That's why we're here. He wants to prove his glory by by every day giving us joy and rest and peace in him, showing that he is all satisfying in his value and worth to us. And he made us to crave that relationship, to hunger for it, like we hunger for food or sleep or sex, the same kind of hunger. Does that sound like your relationship with God? Is that the way you think about him? Is he real and present for you? Do you love the thought of him? Do you get encouraged and uplifted just thinking about him and his perfections revealed in Scripture? Or is he abstract to you? More of an idea than a living reality? Is he distant, maybe even bland? If you answer yes to any of those latter questions, as I do on many days, then you have just answered the question of why you need a priest. That feeling towards God is not what it was meant to be. You were made for a relationship that's broken. And all of us experience it, no matter where we are in our position or posture towards Jesus. And there's one final layer to it. This is one you probably won't feel in the same way. I think the layers we've already talked about, the sort of off-kilter nature of our lives, our, our fears and depression and, and, and discouragement, we, we all connect with that, and this notion that God isn't real to us in the way we want him to be, that we don't desire him or, or hunger after him in the way that we want to, we can connect with that, and that's easy to see, well, we need someone to fix this relationship because it's broken, but if the Bible has proven true in its diagnosis on those two things, then I think we have to give it some credibility in this third layer, one that we may not feel, but the Bible says it's just as real, and it's this. This breach in our relationship with God is our fault, and we're going to be judged for it. We have made a statement. When we sin, at root, what that is, is a statement 
about the nature of God and his worth. What we're saying is that he is not worth full obedience, trust, submission, faith. We make the same kind of statement about God when we sin that a husband who steps outside of his marriage makes about his wife and whether or not she can satisfy all of his needs. We understand the relationship of adultery, right? And often the Bible uses that as an illustration of what it is for us to sin against God. What we're telling him is that he's not enough for us. We've got to supplement what he offers through what we can get for ourselves in other places. That makes a statement about God's quality. It's a statement about who he is, what he's worth. It's to, it's to throw dirt on his name, and it won't stand. It can't stand. What, though, if God reconciled with us? What if God took the initiative to heal the breach in our relationship that is caused by our sin? What if he made a way to restore us? The priesthood is exactly that. The priesthood emphasizes that something has gone terribly wrong, that there is now a breach in the most important relationship in our lives. But God, the offended party, is taking it on himself to reconnect with those that he made in his image and loves at the core of his life. Verse 4 talks about this. It says that no one gets to appoint themselves to be high priest any more than you might just decide, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to be a Supreme Court justice tomorrow and just appoint yourself. No, no, God has to make this heal, has to heal this relationship. It's going to be healed at all. And the priesthood is God's appointed means of reconnecting with us and healing this relationship. That's why we need a priest. All of us do, whether we realize it or not. Don't let the language of priesthood push you away from understanding why you so desperately need what Jesus is described here as offering to us. So, God established the priesthood so we can enjoy the life-giving relationship we were made to enjoy. How does that work? I think the next question we've got to answer, and the one that this passage helps us with at the beginning, is what do priests actually do? If they're, if they're meant to heal this relationship that's broken, how do they do it? The first four verses of this chapter describe, in sort of basic terms, what priests do in the Old Testament system that God set up as a way to heal this relationship. And it really, I think we can summarize it in two different categories. These, these priests represent humankind to God. They stand for the human race and represent them to God. And they represent God his interest, his offer of salvation to humans. They're a a go-between, a mediator. They represent us to God, and God in his will, his offer to us, to those that they serve. I want to break down both of those just really quickly. The first few verses help us out here. Priests offer sacrifices to God, verse 1 says in chapter 5, as, as their way of connecting us and standing for us before the throne of God. And I know that this talk of sacrifice, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, is, is kind of like priesthood in the sense that it's not a concept that we have in our vocabulary, in our everyday lives, and it, and it can even seem primitive to some of us. 
there's no getting at the gospel without coming to grips with the importance of blood and sacrifice. Basically, it's the only way to restore the relationship because if God just looks the other way at our sin, at our breach of this relationship, then what he'd be saying is that our sin doesn't matter. And what that would be saying is that he doesn't matter. Remember how we've defined sin already? Sin is essentially us saying God's not good enough. We can't trust him. We can't be content with what he offers us. We've got to step outside the marriage to get what we need. If that's what sin is ultimately, then for God to just look the other way, he would be endorsing that view of himself. He would be endorsing our shame on his name. To go back to this, this cheating metaphor that the Bible uses so often, no therapist worth their salt would counsel a couple who's experienced the breach of adultery to pretend like it never happened. Even a therapist trying to save the relationship could only do that by naming it, by acknowledging it, by making appropriate restitutions for it. In other words, a relationship broken by adultery is only ever going to be healed on the clear ground that it was once broken, and that really mattered, and something has got to testify to that. Sacrifices for sin were the symbolic way of showing the weight of unfaithfulness to an abandonment of God. That's ultimately what sacrifices are about. It's saying life is at stake in making this statement about God. And to heal this relationship, something has got to pay. Ultimately, we look ahead through that to Jesus. Some of the things we're going to study in this letter are the, the fact that God not just demands sacrifice to clear his name, to, to, to offer a better and more powerful statement about his worth. He doesn't just demand it. He also supplies it. He is the one who takes the hit that's necessary to clear his name. That's the beautiful path that's ahead of us. For now, we just need to know that what priests do is they offer restitution, they offer sacrifices on behalf of the humans that they serve to God who has been offended as a way of healing this breached relationship. Probably what this author has in mind when he talks about high priests making sacrifices in verse 1 is the Day of Atonement ceremony that's described in Leviticus chapter 16. At that ceremony, the high priest was the only day in the year that the high priest could actually enter into the very presence of God a place in the temple or the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And what they had to do is slaughter a bull first for their own sins because they took sin with them into that place. Then they took two different goats. One would be killed to offer restitution for the sins of the people. And the other they would place their hands on and symbolically transfer all of the sin that had been committed by the community of Israel during that year onto the goat and they would send it out, banish it from the camp, symbolically getting rid of their sins in the way that the psalm talks about, that God has removed our sins for us as far as the east is from the west and the heavens are from the earth. That's the ceremony that this author probably has in mind. It's relating or, or, or representing humankind to God to heal the relationship, and sacrifice mattered. The other side of the relationship, what priests do, is, is to represent God and his will to humans. I think that's what this author is getting at in verse 2, when he says that the priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
I think that the, the, the point is that the, the priest deals with the same failures uh, in his own life that the people he represents have in their lives, and that helps him to connect with them, to empathize with them. But this phrase about him dealing gently with these people, I think that indicates that he's working with them. He's, he's not content to leave them where they are. He wants to help them improve. And, and I think in that sense, he represents God's wishes to his people and helps to offer them some way out. He deals gently with them as one who understands them, but he's still working with them to, to push them and, and help them to come, become better. He gives them spiritual guidance. He represents the will and the pleasure of God to them. But his means of sympathizing with them is also the reason that his priesthood, the old high priesthood that's being talked about here, is so limited. It's also the reason that it couldn't last forever. Because this person who offers sin, offers sacrifice for the sins of his people, also has to offer sacrifice for his own sin. We're going to say a lot more about this in weeks to come, but, but the, the main point is that this whole system of sacrifice, of priesthood, was set up to show that something else was going to be needed. It's a system of impermanence. Think about it. They have to do this every year. The sacrifices don't last. They keep having to do them over and over again, and they keep needing new priests because these priests who are guilty of sin keep dying, right? There's nothing stable about this system. And that was the whole point. It was to point ahead to something more that's got to come to really fulfill what this thing was meant to accomplish. So what do priests do? They operate in this sphere of relationship, a fundamental relationship between God and his people that's broken. And they stand in the gap and try to restore it through a means God instituted, offering sacrifice to God and guidance, direction, and ultimately pointing to salvation for his people. So what makes Jesus perfect? The most, the, the most important part of this passage is the, the second half of it, verses 5 through 10. The author really gets to his point there. The point is that everything this priesthood I've just described was meant to do could not be done by that priesthood and had to be done by someone else. We need someone who's perfect, who is not limited by his own sin, and who's not going to himself die so that we keep having to replace him. We need permanence. We need perfection. And Jesus offers that. How? What makes him able to serve as the only priest who fully fills our need and heals our relationship with God? The text gives us an answer to that question in three steps. Three steps. First, and I'm only going to hit on this one briefly, because we're going to come back to it a lot in the days to come. And this text really doesn't go very far with it. First, this is sort of a large category, Jesus is a perfect priest because he has a different and a better appointment. I know, right? That's kind of anticlimactic. What is all this appointment stuff? We're going to say a lot more, as I've said. We're going to have to understand what Melchizedek is all about and why he's so important to this author. We're going to do that just by way of a little advertising, next week. The way we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday when Christians all over the world are celebrating the kingship of Jesus and the way we're going to prepare to celebrate Good Friday is to think about this figure, Melchizedek, who points ahead to Jesus because Melchizedek, like Jesus, was a king who also served as a priest. 
and combine those things into one perfect office. That's next week. But for now, the thrust of these Old Testament citations in verses 5 and 6, it's pretty simple. It's that Jesus was appointed by God. Like all priests have to be appointed by God. Jesus was appointed, but not in the same way that they were. He was not one of many priests. He was appointed as the one. As the Son. As the one appointed forever in an entirely different order. Like any skillful writer, the author here doesn't doesn't give us all of the details. He's kind of dropping hints about where he's going. He, He mentions Melchizedek and doesn't come back to him, for instance. He mentions this priestly order that lasts forever and he he doesn't really do anything with it yet but he's coming back to it a couple chapters later he's just trying to put a little taste in our mouths for it the point the emphasis of this passage is that jesus this new order that he's in it's forever he is appointed a priest forever and so what it does for us is raise a question how in the world is jesus service eternal in a way that no others could be How did Jesus get this higher and eternal appointment? How is he, in other words, the perfect, once-for-all priest? Step number two gets us there. Jesus not just has a better and different and better appointment. Jesus also makes an offering to God for us that's perfect. Remember how we described the priesthood? That it goes in two ways? That it's offering stuff to God on behalf of the people that are represented by the priest, but also offers from God direction, guidance, salvation to the people. Jesus is perfect in his priesthood because he does those two things perfectly. The first is he, he offers from us to God a perfect offering. Now, this is where you might want to strap on your seatbelt. The passage gets really tricky right here. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 for us again to get it back into your mind, and you'll see what I mean. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a lot of confusing details in those verses. What is the significance of Jesus' offering? And in what sense did God hear him? Didn't Jesus die? How did God hear him if he ended up having to die anyway? How did Jesus, the Son of God, perfect forever, learn obedience? Was he disobedient before? And how was he? God forever, the one necessary existent being, the one who is perfect through all of eternity, how did he become perfect? How was he made perfect in the language of verse 9? Now, we're not going to exhaust all of these details, but I think we can get far enough. I think that the best way to come at this is to see verse 7 as an analogy to the offerings made by the priests in verse 1. You remember back in verse 1, it said that, that priests are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to do what? To offer sacrifices and gifts for sins. Similarly, verse 3, 
Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice. Then in verse 7, we're told that Jesus offers up loud prayers and supplications and tears and cries. And those commentators see that as intentionally echoing the language earlier from earlier in the paragraph, that, that this is Jesus' offering for us that's being talked about. It's not just prayer. It's more than that. It is what he offers to God for us. And I think probably what we first go to is that this is talking about Gethsemane, where Jesus is preparing for his own death and he's praying that God would let the cup pass from him, that there'd be some other way that he could accomplish what he has to accomplish. Many of you are probably familiar with that scene. It's gut-wrenching. I think that that is implied here, but that it's also bigger than that. And the question, if, if it's only talking about Gethsemane, we have to ask, what does it mean that God heard him? Because he died. God didn't spare him from death. I think, that the, I think that what this text is getting at is bigger than Gethsemane, even if Gethsemane's prayer is, is part of what's referred to. And that I think being heard is different than being answered yes immediately. I think what we're meant to see is this. Jesus is offering a sacrifice for us through his prayers, through his whole life of faithful and reverent obedience to God. And that, in this, in that he was heard by God in the sense that his sacrifice was accepted. That's the exact language that's used for God's acceptance of the Day of Atonement sacrifices. He hears his people. He counts them as worthy because of what they've given. So when Jesus offers to us all of these prayers and, and petitions, he is offering a sacrifice that is acceptable. I think what's get, what it's getting at in verse 7 is not just his prayers, but his whole life of of suffering and supplication that ultimately ends in his death and that that whole thing is seen by God as a sacrifice that's worthy and he hears him. Here's the way one commentator put it. His offering has been accepted because he proved to be the one who trusted God without reservation. He did what Adam and Eve and all of us ever since have failed to do and that is trust that God is who he claims to be. Think about this. Let's just use Gethsemane as an example. Think about that prayer. Now, normally what we go to is him asking not to, not to die. But it wasn't, that wasn't a final request that he made. That was part of a longer prayer in which the gist of it was, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, even in his prayer that the cup would pass from him, prayed as one who was perfectly submissive to God, who conducted a relationship with God in exactly the way it was meant to be conducted, in full and complete trust that shows that God is worth it, that he's worthy and all-satisfying, that there's no need to step outside the marriage. Jesus did that perfectly, and his prayer life was one way of showing that, so that ultimately when he offered his death, it was a sacrifice that was pure and unblemished and therefore perfect and permanent. Jesus was faithful for us. I think that's, if, if that's how we're understanding verse 7 and this thing that Jesus offers and that God hears, then it helps us understand what verses 8 and 9 are saying too. Because there he says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he was suffered. Does that mean he was disobedient before? Well, no. It means that he learned obedience by experience. That he, he already knew what it was, it's sort of an idea level, but he had to walk through it. He had to perfectly fulfill it. In the same sense that you can, you can read all that you want to about what, what childbirth is going to be like, but then you learn it when you're in that room and you're giving birth or you're watching your wife give birth. 
It's a different kind of learning. That's the kind of learning Jesus experienced on the path to the cross. Better yet, he didn't just experience obedience. He accomplished obedience. I think that's the payoff of the first part of verse 9, where it says that after he was made perfect, he was able to offer something perfect to us. How was he made perfect? Was he imperfect before? Had he done something wrong? No. Often when the Bible uses the term perfect, what it has in mind is completion. Absolute completion. Something that has no lack in it. So what we have here, if you take the composite, 7, 8, and 9, is Jesus offering himself on an altar, offering for us a sacrifice that is received by God because God hears it. It's an offering that's perfect because he learned obedience and accomplished it in a life that left nothing to be desired. So all those things that were true of the old priesthood, the fact that it had to be done over and over and over again, the fact that priests had to be replaced over and over again, those fall by the wayside because now we have a priest forever. And the reason he's a priest forever is that he is a priest who offers something perfect to God on our behalf. The third step comes directly out of this. So Jesus has a better appointment. He offers something perfect on our behalf to God. And now he also offers something perfect from God to us. Because what he offered to God is so complete and leaves nothing to be desired, then what he can offer to us is not another year of existence, another year of sins forgiven, but a perfect and eternal salvation that is already accomplished and as good as ours if we have faith in him. That's the point of verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You notice the big difference in this parallel that he's been drawing between the old priests and Jesus. Every element in it has got a parallel. I don't know if you noticed that. It's kind of obscured by different language. But, but every verse mirrors another verse. And the one difference in it is that in his description of the old priesthood, he makes a big deal about them having to make sacrifices for their own sins. And when it comes to Jesus, his sacrifice is for us and of himself, not for himself. Those priests in the old system were a gift from God. It was a good thing that they were sympathizing with their people and offering what God had established for them to offer to give their people new life. But they, what they could offer from God to their people was always limited because they themselves were part of the problem. They were guilty of the same things their people were guilty of. And so what they could offer was another year in which sins were forgiven, but that was it. Jesus, because his solidarity with us comes not from sin, but from perfect and unflinching suffering that he took on for us, he's able to offer us a perfect salvation from God because he stands outside of the problems that are ours and reaches down into them and pulls us up out of them. That's something only Jesus could do. Now, I want to say one more thing in closing because I, could, I couldn't read this passage without catching in verse 9, this qualification that he's a source of eternal salvation only for those who obey him. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, 
that, that, that my obedience is a condition for me enjoying something that Jesus offers. It always trips me up because I think of the gospel as something God offers to me as a, a free gift. And if it depends on my obedience, then I've got nothing. It's, it becomes a source of oppression almost to me in my spirit and, and uh, of fear. And if, and if that's the way we're meant to read this verse, then it flies in the face of everything this whole passage has been saying, that Jesus offers everything that's needed. Why is our obedience necessary, if that's what it means? So I want to close by just saying this very simply and quickly. Please don't forget how this letter has defined obedience all along. It has defined obedience essentially as an act of faith in Jesus. Anytime a command has come around, it's been like this. It's been, consider Jesus. Consider his faithfulness for you. It's been hold fast to Jesus. Don't let go of him. It's been draw near to Jesus so that you can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. It's been fight against unbelief and its creeping influence in your life. What does it mean to obey Jesus for this author? It means to trust in him. It means to have faith in him. And every other kind of obedience, obedience to his teachings, to his way of life, flows only from this first and foremost obedience to hold on to him in faith. If it doesn't come from faith, it's not truly obedience and it doesn't, it doesn't please God. Without faith, we're told later, it is impossible to please him. Here's an example from a wonderful writer named Frederick Biegner that really helps us to connect, I think, with this relationship. We can't get this relationship wrong. Obedience, what it means to claim the salvation that's offered us in Jesus is to have faith first, and then we obey his commands. Who we are in in Jesus first is what leads to everything else. Biegner draws an analogy to the beauty and the beast, you know, the famous fairy tale, land as old as time or something like that. Time is old as tale. Something like that. He says, he, he points to that story and he says, it's, it's only when the beast recognizes that he has been loved in all of his unloveliness that he is transformed into something beautiful. So Bigner says about this relationship between what Jesus does for us and what we do to obey him. It's only... I'm quoting from him now. When we discover that God really loves us in all our unloveliness, that we ourselves start to become godlike. Little by little, the forgiving person starts to become the excuse me, the forgiven person starts to become a forgiving person. The healed person to become a healing person. The loved person to become a loving person. Jesus offers, as a perfect priest, a perfect salvation that is available first and foremost to those who hold on to him. And from that place, through love and affection, not through fear and pride, we are driven to live for him and like him. Father, help us. Make it so. It's past our ability, that's for sure. We, we know that from lots of experience. Protect us from distraction based on the antiquity of these words and concepts and help us to see that Jesus offers exactly what we've already been wanting, even if we didn't know that before, even if we had not seen it in those terms. Jesus is what we need. So would you drive us to him and through him 
to an obedience that's rooted in, in peace and rest and joy and perfect satisfaction in everything that's ours in Christ. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.